let's go to the Lord in a time of preparation. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, this day that we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And as we gather, we rejoice in the favor and the blessings which you have for us in meeting together, in drawing us from this area to congregate, to give our collective voices to Jesus Christ living in heaven, interceding for us at your right hand. We gather, too, and primarily to listen to that word which you have given to us, given to holy men of old who were moved by your spirit to record these, these very words that we have before us, that we might know your instruction and your law and your way for us, that law which has been decreed for us from the beginning of time. We pray that as we draw near, that we would draw near with hearts open and willing to hear, reminded that we carry even into this very place those many cares of this world, the thoughts of this life, the cares of our work and occupations, our very associations, and yet we pray that you would help us to hear the word of God. For we remind it that it is breathed out by you to us, and we pray that in that, whether it be for teaching or correction or instruction or admonition, that that word given to us would be according to your purposes and ways, and that we would not turn away from it, but that we would seize by faith these very truths. And in that, we pray for your servant who has prepared that message for us, even over the course of this last week. And we pray for the blessings of your Holy Spirit through those very lips that we would hear your word to us coming to our hearts and rise to that in obedience and faith. And we'll do that with your blessing and your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading is taken from John 7, verses 32 to 39. This is located on page 893 of your pew Bible. We're reading from John's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 32 to 39. This is the word of God. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus 
was not yet glorified. Keep your Bibles open at John chapter 7. Let me give you context. We are at this stage in the life of Jesus, only six months away from his death, burial, and resurrection. Six months before Jesus is crucified, dead, and buried. And already the events that will lead to that end are in play. And at the point we read of, things are now taking an ominous turn. Indeed, this is the transitional moment in which the die is cast and the destiny of Jesus is sealed, at least from a human point of view. And in this passage that we have just read, we see the Sanhedrin is galvanized. We see the Son is glorified. And we see the Spirit is given. First of all, the Sanhedrin is galvanized. Back in chapter 7, verse 1, we find this whole section beginning with this information. The Jews were seeking to kill him. This whole section has been about killing Jesus. And there have been spontaneous attempts to do this right from the very beginning of his public life. Uh, Luke in his gospel tells us that right at the very beginning, in the very first appearance of Jesus at a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, there was an attempt to stone him to death. But now as his claims become more explicit and specific, as he begins to talk not only about his teaching but about his heavenly origins, as he points to his miracles as signs of divine powers that he possesses, as he talks about his divine origins and has already provoked debate among those who've come to listen to him, we hear them speaking. We hear in this very passage we've read of the things that people were muttering about him. People are discussing him. He is the topic of conversation. They're asking, where did he come from? They don't just mean, did he come from Nazareth? That's one of the answers that people are giving. Yes, we know where he comes from. He comes from Nazareth. That's where he grew up. That's where he went to school. That's where he started work. That's where his folks lived. Nazareth. But others were saying, no, you can't begin there. We have to ask a, a further question. We have to ask the question was raised by John the Baptist when he says about this one, he was before me. What did John mean when he said about Jesus? He was before me. Where does he come from? These miracles that he performs are things only God can do. So where does he come from? And these questions are buzzing around among the authorities, of course. The answer to the questions is far clearer. Well, he comes from Nazareth, and uh, we know exactly who his folks were, and uh, we believe that the Messiah, when he appears, we won't know where he's come from. He'll come out of the blue and and uh, we're expecting a hidden Messiah, and Jesus doesn't fit that bill. Jesus challenges that. He says, you're judging by appearances. And he reaffirms to them in the passage just before this that he has come from the Father, that he has a unique and intimate knowledge of the Father. And Matthew and Luke both pick up this conversation and quote something Jesus said right at this time. In Matthew 9 and Luke 10. 
when he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So by verse 30 of this chapter, they are seeking to arrest Jesus. Why is this? Because they believe he's a pretender. He cannot possibly be the Messiah. You notice how they argue if you glance back to verse 27. We know where this man comes from, but when the Messiah appears, no one will know where he comes from. That was a popular view. There's no biblical basis for it, but it was a popular view. And so here he is. Here is Jesus, the Nazarene. No sudden appearance, so therefore he doesn't qualify to be the Messiah. But then glance at verse 31. There were some people, some people in the crowd, and they thought that he may be the Messiah. There was a good chance that he might be the Messiah. Verse 31, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ, the Messiah, appears, will he do more signs than this man is doing? I mean, it's inconceivable that anybody could do any more than this man is doing. I don't know if they were real believers. I don't know whether it was that they were just impressed with what Jesus was doing. Maybe their faith was real. Maybe their faith was simply like the faith of Jesus' own brothers. They believed in his miracles, but they didn't really believe in him. And so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, speaking with irony here, You know me. Oh, you think you know me. And you think you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now I want you to pick up those words. Him you do not know. You. Who are the you? They are the most religious, the most privileged, the most well-taught people in the world. They are the people, the only people in the entire world who handle the oracles of God, the Jewish scriptures. Jesus is saying to these people, verses 28 to 28 to 29 through this section, you do not know him. You do not know God. That's why you want to kill me. I am from God. God sent me. But since you don't know God, then you don't recognize me. And these claims of Jesus, you see, lead to this attempt to arrest him, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour has not yet come. That attempt had failed in a way that revealed Jesus' power. In fact, even when the hour had came, John will still show us that no one can lay a hand on Jesus until Jesus permits it. So what we have here then is we're introduced now in the verses we read to the formal and official move by the authorities to handle Jesus. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Judaism. In that council there were two parties. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The theological conservatives on the Sanhedrin were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were Bible men. If you pricked them, they would bleed Bible. They were full of the Bible. They were well-read in the Bible. 
They could quote the Bible off the top of their head. They could tell you exactly what the Bible said and prescribe for absolutely every detail of your life. They could take you to the Bible and work from the principles there right down to the minute details of your life, to the minutiae of a person's experience. These were Bible men. They were orthodox. They believed in one God, the God of Israel. These were, if you will, the nearest you find in the Bible to conservative evangelical people. If you think of the hallmarks of evangelicalism, what are the hallmarks of evangelicalism as a, as a movement? Well, they believe the Bible is inerrant. The Pharisees believe the Bible to be inerrant. They believe the Bible to be the sole authority in all matters of faith and practice. The Pharisees believed in that. Evangelical are conversionists. They will do anything to get the gospel out and to reach people with the gospel to see them converted. The Pharisees would traipse heaven and earth in order to make one convert for Judaism. They were evangelicals, are into personal holiness, or at least they used to be until they decided that wasn't on their list anymore uh, in some quarters. But they were very characterized by personal holiness and the Pharisees were noted for their personal holiness. Evangelicals are generous to charities. The Pharisees had a reputation for their generosity to the poor, so much so that the Pharisees were respected and loved by the general population. We think Pharisee, we think hate. The people in Jesus' day thought Pharisee, they thought respect. The Pharisees were the theological conservatives. And like all theological conservatives, including myself, there's a tendency towards self-righteousness to think we have it all taped. And the Pharisees had that feature also. But they were also on the Sanhedrin, of course, these theological liberals, the, the Sadducees. These were in the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, they dominated the temple, the worship. The, the, they were the priests in the temple. They were political operators, and they were liberal theologically. They didn't believe in the whole of the Old Testament Scripture. They believed only in the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. They rejected the supernatural element in religion. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They had the high priesthood pretty much in their grasp, and they were making extravagant amounts of money by the temple industry that they ran. Professor Don Carson says, when you look at the, 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 the Sanhedrin, you see these strange bedfellows, these theological liberals on the one hand and theological conservatives on the other, and you find them united. They were united by this one thing, their opposition to Christ. And still to this day, you look at the world and you find people, polar opposites, people who are committed fanatically to a religious outlook of life on the one hand, people who are fanatically committed to an irreligious, non-religious, anti-religious outlook of secularism on the other, and you see from these two polar opposites in our world, one common element, and what is that? Their opposition to Jesus Christ and his claims upon their lives. What we find is that although the Pharisees were definitely not the major party in the Sanhedrin, on this subject, they had taken 
a leap. They'd initiated the hostility to Jesus. And what these conservatives and liberals on the Sanhedrin were worried about, what the final straw was, is found in verse 31. Many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man is doing? This is what really sparked off their final decision. People were believing Jesus. Not only that, people were talking about Jesus. And both parties on either end of this great spectrum were agreed that they did not want Jesus being talked about, far less thought of as a potential Messiah. So the conservatives got into bed with the liberals. The Pharisees colluded with the Sadducees who had real power, who had their hands on the levers of power, who were in touch with the Roman occupying force, who had at their own disposal their own private army of temple guards, paramilitary force. And together, the Sanhedrin was galvanized in its desire to be killing Jesus. Then the passage moves on. And the second section, verses 33 to 34, focuses in on the sun. The sun is glorified. Now, that's my outcome. That's my, where, where I'm going to, if you like, after reading these verses. Actually, the way in which it's introduced, that is, in fact, the right outcome, by the way, but the way in which it's introduced in the context is quite enigmatic. You can see that if you look at those verses with me. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is making a claim here. He's making a claim in the context of the hour that he's been looking forward to. In fact, these very same words are going to be used in chapter 13, verse 1, where they are linked to this word, the hour. That is the moment God has planned. The moment that God had put in his diary, the events would take place. And there the verb to go away is used. John 13:3. here in verse 33. He is going away to God. Let me just pause and uh, read to you the beginning of verse uh, 3 of John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. That's precisely the language that is used here. And he says to his hearers that he is going back where he came from. He's already told them that he's come from God. So now he's telling them he's going back to God. If they've been listening to him up to this point, they know exactly what he's saying. And when he goes back to the Father, his return to the Father will take him away and take away from his hearers the opportunity to believe in him. Right now, there he stands. Right now, there he is seeking them, calling them, inviting them, reaching out to them. But once he is gone, they will do the seeking, but they will not find him. 
Now, once again, of course, the audience limit and literalize his words. They think, what does he mean when he says going away? Is he going on a journey? Is he perhaps going outside of the bounds of Judaism, outside the bounds of Judah and Israel? Is he going abroad? Is he going to Gentile territory? That's what they begin to think. That's they said to one another. You know, there's a conversation with one another. Where is this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion, that is the Jewish dispersion, among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, but you will not find me? They're asking the question. And they're giving the answer as far as they can see. Does he mean to go to the Greeks? Well, there's a sense in which they got that right, didn't they? As John writes this gospel, the Christian church that John knows in the Roman Empire is largely Gentile. The diaspora, the dispersion that is mentioned here, is the dispersed sons of God that are gathered by Jesus into one body. And that dispersion of the sons and daughters of God includes Gentiles as well as dispersed Jews. So it did come true, but they were missing the point of Jesus' remark. He was going to God. He is talking about the Son being glorified, being glorified by his ascension, by his being raised up to the Father's right hand, by his session, that is his sitting on the throne of the universe in the place of all majesty. Jesus' last earthly act was to ascend to the Father while the disciples watched him on the Mount of Olives. We're told that he ascended into a cloud. That was no ordinary cloud. It was the glory cloud, the Shekinah cloud that appears over and over and over again in the in the former scriptures of the Hebrew Bible. The cloud that gathered around the chariot that caught up Elijah. You remember, as Elijah is caught up, not in the chariot, but by the glory that accompanied the chariot into the presence of God. That glory cloud that appeared to Ezekiel, that he saw when he saw the, the action of God or the, or the carriage of God coming and he saw the cherubim and the angels gathered around it, this glory, glory cloud. It was the glory cloud that descended onto the Mount of Transfiguration so that the disciples saw Jesus transfigured before them. They saw his innate glory, the glory as his, of his deity as God shining through the veil of his humanity. He was caught up in the cloud. Whereas Elijah was taken up, Jesus is conveyed into the presence of the Father, not just as Elijah was, if you will, as part of the cloud, a member of that cloud of glory. Jesus is on the chariot throne. He ascends as a visible sign that he is leaving this realm, that he is assuming his throne, that he is going to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. The Son is glorified. That's absolutely vital that we understand that we are not waiting for Jesus to sit on his throne. 
We're not waiting for the mopping up operations of our struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil here in order that we might somehow or other, once it's all done, see Jesus sitting on his throne. If you read the book of Revelation, you find the lamb comes straight from being slain. And as a lamb that has just been slain, he is welcomed by all the angelic beings, all these heavenly beings, including the church that is already gathered around the throne of God in heaven. He is welcomed by these magnificent creatures. The whole universe is represented, as it were, in that place that is God's ultimate location, his throne room. And the lamb who has just been slain assumes the throne. He sits on the throne of God. He takes the place of power, the highest place that heaven affords is his by sovereign right. He takes it for himself. You need to know that your Jesus ascended into heaven, as the Apostle Creed says. He is located somewhere. He arose. This was not just an invisible move of a soul emigrating into some other kind of spiritual never-never land. No, Jesus ascended, body and soul. This was an upward, visible, physical movement of his body and soul. And in his body and with his soul, the cloud takes Jesus, the Jesus they knew, the Jesus they'd had breakfast with, the Jesus they'd eaten with and touched. He's taken into the presence of God. You, you, can, you can know absolutely where Jesus is tonight. Jesus is not everywhere. Jesus is somewhere. The Holy Spirit of Jesus is everywhere, bringing the presence of Jesus wherever he is. But Jesus himself is somewhere. He is seated in the nerve center of the universe. He already has his kingdom. He is already seated. Peter said this in the day of Pentecost. He has, he has already acceded to the throne of his father, David, which is God's throne. He already governs the universe. There is no twist in the story of history that has not been governed by King Jesus. There is no assault on the people of God that has not been permitted or decreed by King Jesus. There is no disruption in the world's fabric that has not been permitted or decreed by King Jesus. He reigns and he reigns now and he rules the world now in the interests of his church. And even when we find things happening that we don't understand, we come back again and again. The picture the Bible paints is that Jesus has ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And his being glorified, his ascending to glory, is in Scripture a kind of foretaste of his descent from heaven at the end of the age. You will know that one of Jesus' favorite descriptions of himself is a description of the Son of Man, where he sees the Son of Man receiving a kingdom and authority from the Father. What Daniel saw in that vision was Jesus ascended, receiving a kingdom and authority 
The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. Satan has already lost the battle. He no longer can claim that this world is his world. It is Christ's world. And he is driving history towards its final denouement when he returns personally, visibly, when he descends, when every eye shall see him, and even those who pierced him shall look upon him whom they pierced. Jesus is glorified. His coronation day was coming. I will be with you a little while longer. That was true. Six months. I am going to him who sent me. The Son is glorified. And then with this enigmatic reference to his glorification hanging in the air, as is the outcome of the officer's attempt to arrest him, nothing is said about that. They didn't get him that day. Instead, we're told that Jesus seizes the initiative publicly. Look what it goes on to say. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now the last day that's referred to here means the seventh day of the feast. The the feast actually went on into the eighth day, but the eighth day was like the last day of your camp, your summer camp, where you're packing up in the morning, you're getting ready to go home. You do some stuff in the morning, but really, frankly, you know, the end is, you've already done all the things you're going to be doing, and and now it's, it's all done except the goodbyes. And the eighth day of the feast was that day. That was the last day in a sense, but it wasn't the full day. Therefore, when we talk about the last day and the great day, we're talking about day seven. That's very important. It's the last full day of the feast. It was the greatest. It was the day in which the most high-profile event uh, took place. Now, the rabbis still talk about the rejoicing that happens on the Feast of Tabernacles or booths. In fact, one of the rabbis used to say that if you've never rejoiced at the Feast of Tabernacles, then you've never rejoiced. It was worth paying good money to see the Feast of Tabernacles, to see the ritual that took place. For seven days, the priests would go to the Pool of Siloam with their great golden pitchers. They would gather water, and then they would carry them through the streets of Jerusalem towards the temple precincts. And as they went along, they would sing psalms. They would sing renditions of, uh, for example, Isaiah chapter 12. Let us draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy shall we draw water from the wells of salvation. The streets were jam-packed with tens of thousands of people from all over Judea and Galilee and the diaspora around the world making their way to Jerusalem for those seven days. And they'd gather in the streets and they'd watch the procession. And then the procession would get to the temple and one of the priests would take the pitcher and pour out water beside the altar of sacrifice where the daily offering was made. The people would wave their palm branches and they'd say, God is our Savior. Let us draw water from the wells of salvation. And then on the last day, the great day, the priests 
would go round the altar with the water once, twice, three times, seven times. And then at the end, the chosen priest would pour the water beside the altar. And when he'd done this, the priest would raise his hands and all the crowd would be silent. Let me give you an overview of that crowd. Tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem milling around, heaving, mass of humanity. The noise, the pushing and shoving to see the great golden pictures being carried past up towards the temple. From our helicopter in the sky, we noticed some people trying to push their way through the crowd unsuccessfully. That's the soldiers that had been sent to arrest Jesus. They get lost in the crowd somewhere and they never actually get to him at this point. We see the priests as they march around the altar seven times. We see the priest as he raises his hands and suddenly silence reigns over this massive, and then out the corner of our eye, we see a figure climbing onto a prominent place where he could be seen by the crowds. And then with a loud voice, capturing their attention, we're told he stood up. We're told that he cried out. We're told raising his voice, he grabbed the attention of the masses to make this solemn proclamation of truth. I remember having an experience just like that. I was 19. I'd gone back from college and had participated in what was known as a Jesus March. About 6,000 people converged in Glasgow and they marched through the streets of Glasgow to George Square, right at the very heart of the city. When we all got there, the cameras were there, the television crews were there, but there was nobody who'd organized this thing. There was nothing. We weren't going to do anything except just stand there with our Jesus badges on. And so at the prompting of some of my friends, I climbed up onto one of these big monuments. There was some great person in bronze at the top. And I let out a roar. And the crowd were silent. And I preached a mini gospel sermon and I climbed back down again. That's what happened this day. Jesus grabs their attention. 6,000 people heard me in that square. It wasn't hard to be heard if you projected your voice. Actually, after 40 years of these things, I can't do it. But I could do it then. And here is Jesus. Listen to him. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Probably alluding to Isaiah 12. Probably alluding to Ezekiel 47. He is saying to them, with me the fullness of blessing has arrived. Don't you realize all of this? All of this is about me. These centuries of the Feast of Tabernacles ritual has all been about me. And here you've come, you've come thirsty. In the words of Pascal, there's a God-shaped void in your heart that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. 
What can fill this void? Only the Spirit of Jesus. He said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, you need to understand what he is not saying here. He's not saying the Spirit has been inactive. The Spirit was all over the place in the Old Testament. He was there at creation, bringing order and life into creation. He was there anointing prophets, priests, and kings for their service. He was there changing the hearts of unbelievers and making them the people of God. He was there giving faith to people. David knew it was the Holy Spirit that he needed, not just the Holy Spirit for his office, but the Holy Spirit for his salvation. And throughout the whole of the Old Testament, there is no revelation, there is no new birth, there is no salvation apart from the activity of the Spirit. He was present and active. But he was not anointing people in the way that Jesus is speaking about here. You remember that famous incident in the life of Moses? He's very upset, discouraged. He's been carrying the weight of these people on his back alone. He is so depressed that he asks God, kill me now. These are great people, but I'm fed up being their pastor. Kill me now. Many pastors have thought that. I'd better just to take me up to heaven right now. And Moses, uh, the Lord comes up with this brilliant idea. He says, what you need are elders. <laughs> Seventy of them. And uh, he, he gets them to a point these 70 men, they have to come out to the tabernacle. Why did I laugh there? I was, the guys who are elders probably aren't working out for themselves. But so he gathers the elders to the tabernacle, you remember? And he, the spirit that was on Moses, God places in all of the elders there at the tabernacle. It's a great picture, great thing, by the way. And that's where our eldership starts. That's the first session ever in the Bible. But then Joshua... Joshua is a really keen Moseyite. He's a real follower of Moses. He loves Moses to death. And he's been a loyal sidekick over many, many years. And he hears that there are two men back in the camp who are not here at the tabernacle for the ordination service. They are back in the camp. And what are they doing? They're doing the same as these men are doing. They were speaking the word of God. And here are these two men back in the camp who have not been ordained yet. And they're speaking the word of God. Because the Spirit that came upon the elders, came upon them, Eldad and Medad. And we read this, Numbers 11. Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, from his youth said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That was Moses' heart cry. And that heart cry of Moses becomes prophecy in Joel's day. It shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And what was a heart cry for Moses and what was prophecy for Joel becomes history on the day of Pentecost. As the spirit descends, all hell breaks, all heaven rather breaks loose, all heaven breaks loose. And the Spirit descends with power on the church. And guess what? All God's people 
are prophets, priests, and kings. All God's people are able to speak the word of God to each other. Because they have a revelation. God has revealed it. You have it. You can speak it. All God's people are priests. They each have access to God by, through Christ by the Spirit. And all God's peoples are, people are kings. And when Jesus comes again, we'll inherit, we'll inherit our kingdom. John puts it like this in one of his letters. He puts what he's talking about here like this. He says, you have an anointing of the Holy One, and you know all things. Here's the, here's the great mark of the work of the Spirit in this age. As the Father was revealed in creation, as the Son is revealed in redemption, the Spirit is now revealed by Jesus going to heaven. The Spirit now is center stage. He is a spirit of Jesus and he's a shy spirit. He doesn't draw attention to himself because his great joy is to point to Jesus. But in this age, the spirit's fingerprints are all over this book. This is the spirit's gift to the church. This is the anointing you have from the Holy One. You know all things. It all comes together for you because he has placed in your hands the book he has inspired. That's why later in John's gospel, Jesus, when he talks about his going, says to his disciples, when, the, when I go, the Spirit will come and you will be led into all the truth and the rest will come to believe in me through your message. Through your message. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus is the giver and sender of the Spirit. And the Spirit is the conveyor of salvation. And the Spirit is the one who leads us to Jesus. As a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the right hand of God, as a consequence of the Father delighting in all the Son has offered and done and accomplished, he pours out the Spirit. And the fullness of his finished work, that is Christ's finished work, provides a rich deposit from which the Holy Spirit can draw to satisfy the thirst. Your thirst. For satisfaction, for meaning, for life itself. It's not accidental that it's John who reports that when Jesus was on the cross, he cried, I thirst. He took our thirstiness upon himself in order that our thirst might be quenched through faith in him by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we ask this evening that by the work of your Spirit, you would satisfy our every, our deepest longing. That you would meet our deepest need. That you would reveal Christ to us and in us. <clears throat> and that as now we come to this table, that we would eat 
and drink of Christ himself by faith and find ourselves nourished to eternal life. In his strong name we pray. Amen.